I'm Gabby. Welcome to another episode of the Happier Life Project, brought to you by free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self, in partnership with the Priory Healthcare. Show of hands, how many of us try to eat well and move our bodies to reduce the risk of chronic diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, stroke, some cancers, and associated disabilities. Okay, show of hands again, please. How many of us do exactly the same, eat well and move our bodies, but for appearance-driven goals, to be the same size as my friends, to show off my beach body, to be my best self on the gram? How many of us eat well and move to help us think clearly and feel more alert? to improve concentration and our attention span. Now how many of us suffer from fatigue, brain fog, impaired decision-making, slower reaction times, and don't always have the best memory? Well, that could be because of your diet. You may be a healthy weight. You may be hitting the right, and I'm air quoting this, recommended calorie intake which is 2,000 calories a day for a woman and 2,500 calories a day for a man. But you still might be underfueling. Or you might consciously be following a certain diet because of the images you've seen or the testimonials you've read or perhaps for ethical reasons. But you're missing extremely vital macronutrients. So macronutrients are carbohydrates, proteins, fats, vitamins, minerals, fiber, and water. And it's really important that everybody consumes these seven nutrients on a daily basis to help them build their bodies and maintain their health. How many of you are knackered all the time? How many of you believe that carbs are scary and will make us fat? How many of you have a plate with some protein on and maybe salad or vegetables for your dinner? But then a couple of hours later, you are desperately reaching for the biscuit tin. My friend, it is very, very likely that you are under fueling. But here's the great thing. You can take the power back and today's guest is going to help pave the way. Rini McGregor is a leading sports and eating disorder specialist dietitian with 20 years experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. She works with individuals, athletes of all levels and ages, coaches and sports science teams to provide nutritional strategies to enhance sport performance, manage eating disorders and overtraining. And Rini is the best-selling author of some books, training food, get the fuel you need to achieve your goals before, during and after exercise. Fast fuel, food for triathlon success. Orthorexia, when healthy eating goes bad. And more fuel you, understanding your body and how to fuel your adventures. Rini is also the co-founder of Hashtag Train Brave, a campaign raising the awareness of eating disorders in sports and dance. Through her books and our recent conversation, I have learned so much. I've always considered myself healthy and active, but actually I didn't realise some of the deep, deep conditioning that has been in my conscious and subconscious has potentially been affecting my fertility, my bone health, my risk of developing Alzheimer's. So I personally am super grateful to Rini for opening my eyes to some certain myths and beliefs about food. Anyway, this is not about me. This is all about you and your wellness journey. So, ready to meet Rini and find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome sports dietitian, best-selling author, passionate runner, Rini McGregor to the Happy at Life Project. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Gabby. I am very excited to be here. It's a really interesting subject of conversation I think we're going to have today for sure. You are a leading sports 
and eating disorder specialist dietitian, and you've got over 20 years experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. And for me, when I kind of look at that, I think, well, that's quite niche. You know, when you think of on one extreme specializing in sports nutrition, these are people that you, if we talk about professional athletes that we would look up to for being the epitome of optimal performance, right, when it comes to fitness. But then on the flip side, there's the eating disorder expertise area that you have. So putting the two together, it does feel quite niche. It is very niche. And it wasn't what I set out to do when I first qualified as a dietitian at all. Mm. Um, And it wasn't really what I set out to do when I moved into the area of sports. So I started life as a clinical dietitian and worked in the NHS where I did work in eating disorders. My last job in the NHS was actually working with adolescent um, eating disorders, which was pretty tough as you can probably imagine. And at that stage, I guess there was lots of different reasons why I wanted to move on. As much as I don't want to sort of criticize the NHS, I think for me as an individual, it just wasn't a place I could thrive and grow to be the practitioner I am today and and need Mm. to be in order to to feel satisfied with my job. And so I felt quite constrained by the NHS and I felt quite limited and wasn't able to, to give the patients what they needed. And I still have concerns about that. Like, I mean, I work obviously with this very niche group of individuals and and there is always crossover and Mm. don't get me wrong we work with NHS teams a lot of the time because that is important to make sure that you know everybody is saying the same thing but I I do have my concerns about the practices especially in this area of eating disorders because nothing has changed for about 40 years and the message I get constantly through my clinic is I didn't learn anything about my eating disorder. I didn't really understand the purpose of it or or, or what it was doing for me until I came and spoke to you. But I guess I moved into sports because I've always been really sporty. Like Mm -hmm. I was a very sporty child. I had a very difficult childhood in the sense that I was, um, you know, I was the only Asian kid, Indian kid at school pretty much in the area I grew up in, there was a lot of bullying, there's a lot of racism. I come from a very stereotypical Indian family where there's a lot of focus on academia and achievement. Mm. And it was sport where I felt most myself, you know, like when I was on the hockey pitch, when I was on netball court or playing rounders or even dance, like I I, I did pretty much everything. I just loved being active and Mm. I loved the kind of camaraderie of the team as well and it just made me feel safe I suppose Mm. and and most like myself and so I I decided to um do my postgrad in applied sports nutrition so even though I had a biochemistry degree and a dietetic degree I wanted to make sure that I learned the kind of more sports specific and sports physiology aspect of the human body so that I could give appropriate advice I think just got really lucky in the sense that ended up in um, an opportunity working at Bath Uni with um, the rhythmic gymnastic team that were going to London 2012 but the main reason I got that job was because they were looking for somebody who had clinical experience of eating disorders and sports nutrition because Mm. obviously it's a very aesthetic sport and the whole idea was to try and prevent uh, issues with the team Mm. and the youngsters that are involved so I guess that is kind of how I ended up then in this niche Mm. because that was my first sort of experience of working in sport and from the kind of the back of that I was offered many many different roles in lots of different sports which I've I've taken every opportunity because I'm a great believer that the more you do the more you learn the more you know you need to learn Mm. (laughs) and and you know you keep growing all the experiences I've had from like working with Paralympic teams to to working with within my ultra distance sport and um, more aesthetic sport like now I'm obviously the nutrition lead for both England National Ballet and Scottish Ballet so like I've experienced a whole range of disciplines and sports and wherever you go 
there are dysfunctional behaviors around food no. and body mm. and so while it seems very niche actually what we know and we know this from the studies out there that there's actually a 20 percent increased prevalence of eating disorders in the athletic population compared to non-athletic peers so it's actually a really big problem unfortunately we are just living in a time where this is becoming more and more and more of a problem and it makes me quite sad that, that that's the case I feel quite passionate about trying to do something around prevention so that we're not we're not going to constantly see this prevalence keep increasing you know there was a study that came out last week that was saying that since lockdown the number of people suffering with eating disorders has just gone through the roof mm. and and that makes sense to me like you know eating disorders they thrive in uncertainty they thrive in threat this is how they develop it's not what people think it's not about people not liking what they look like and taking that into their own control they're, they're very complex mental illnesses mm. so yeah sorry it's a very long-winded I've kind of gone in circles it's very much what I do so I do apologize yeah. but, uh... <laughs> I mean yeah there was a couple of points I mean what you were saying about the NHS I'm not surprised because we all know there's not enough funding and resources and yeah in my head I was thinking it didn't come as a surprise when you said it's it's not progressed in the the way they look after patients who were suffering from an eating disorder and it didn't surprise me when I read that you were the nutrition lead for the um, English and Scottish National Ballet then I thought well that also doesn't surprise me maybe because we've seen it more in movies and stuff about you know disordered eating and, and the pressure to be a certain size but then just more kind of broadly thinking about athletes in terms of, yeah, I was just surprised that people might not be treating their body kindly enough when they need it to be firing on all yeah. cylinders. Yeah. I mean, we know that that happens if your profession isn't an athlete competing in big tournaments and whatever that we can abuse our body. But it's really sad when you think about how busy you are and that that is a, a, a problem. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's something that will probably surprise a lot of the listeners and yourself is that, you know, again, the study came out earlier this year looking at women's football. Because obviously women's football has yeah. had a massive mm. kind of focus on it this year with all the amazing results they've had. But again, you know, the study that looked at Premier League players in, in the women's sports, we're only looking at a sort of quite small group of individuals, but they found that 36% of women players in that high level were suffering from disordered eating. Mm. So, you know, it is a big problem. And I guess your question around, well, how can that be in terms of they've got to be on top of their game? Mm. But I think if we take a step back and kind of understand, like if you look at the, the personality traits and the kind of the requirements it takes to be a professional athlete, you know, they're often very sort of disciplined they're mm -hmm. very motivated they're they're very kind of um focused they'll often have a perfectionist tendency mm -hmm. you know and I, I say that lightly because perfectionism is something you you learn it's it's you know it's almost like a protection mechanism that you learn as you as you go through life but they have this perfectionist tendency and they, they can also be incredibly critical of themselves and you, you would say well these are the things you need to be top of your game but then if you look at the same characteristics if you look at the characteristics for individuals that are more susceptible to developing eating disorders mm. particularly kind of sort of more restrictive eating disorders but actually just eating disorders in general it's exactly the same list so it shouldn't surprise mm. us that actually we're putting these highly motivated highly critical highly perfectionist driven individuals into generally a competitive space you know a lot of them are quite young when they move into sport they don't have the, the necessary support and understanding about themselves mm. like they don't have that self-awareness but they also don't necessarily always get the support they need to learn how to manage expectations how to appreciate that you know you probably don't need to get a PB every single time you go and race so you probably don't need to be you know player of the match every time you you go and play a game like and so you you basically 
create this perfect storm for dysfunctional behaviors to occur. Because I think what people don't appreciate is that in, in the majority of cases, eating disorders occur in response to high levels of emotions that the individual doesn't know how to regulate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's kind of like often they will have some quite deep rooted beliefs about themselves, like they're not good enough or they're not doing enough or, or somehow they have this fear of failing. Like there's this constant sense of they need to be more. They don't, they don't feel worthy. There's a kind of this constant sort of internal dialogue mm -hmm. that is generated from a very young age and that that is part of that personality type mm. and so those feelings are really uncomfortable and humans are hardwired to avoid discomfort like our brain doesn't like being uncomfortable our brain likes shortcuts it doesn't like experiencing the unknown mm -hmm. fundamentally and again that brings in that uncertainty aspect and the brain is always predicting what's going to happen next because it's it's trying to make sense of the world we live in but equally the brain tends to jump to a negative conclusion because that's easier than sitting in that space of unknown and, and, and kind of being able to predict something positive and so you know you end up with with these disordered eating patterns and some often as well like specifically in the in the athlete world we end up with a lot of exercise dependency as well mm. you know you end up with these dysfunctional behaviors because these are just means and ways that the individual has learned can self-soothe yeah weirdly yeah so they're, they're, they're maladaptive behaviors because eventually they cause them more harm than good mm. but in that moment if they've not learned how to understand their emotions how to navigate the, the potential pressures that are coming their way, then they go in search of another way of doing mm. it. And it's, just, it's the same with alcohol. It's the same with drugs. It's, mm. you know, like we, we all, to a certain degree, find a way of avoiding. I mean, how many of us spend hours on Instagram just scrolling aimlessly and thinking? Procrastination well, is real. an hour. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah. And so, so I think it's like understanding that actually all human behavior mm. has a purpose. And often that purpose is protection, mm. like protection mm -hmm. from something. I don't know what that protection is, but like I'm definitely a perfectionist. I have a tendency to self-sabotage. I also have a, um, a tendency to be a people pleaser and all of these things we don't realize have been generated from our experience and they are ways and means in which we have learned to turn up in the world mm. and basically allow some level of balance mm -hmm. I guess mm -hmm. is is what I'm trying to you know some level of peace shall we say yeah yeah I'm sure that will really resonate it certainly did with me I mean, regardless of whether you're, let's say, sporty or a professional athlete or not, again, that really hits home, doesn't it, what you were just saying? But the way we move and the way we eat and how we do it, you don't need to be a professional athlete to reap the benefits. So why do you think so many of us get it so wrong? Oh, good question. You know? um, yeah, I mean, where do I start? I think... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think a lot of it is miscommunication and mm -hmm. I think misunderstanding poor messaging around food I've heard you say before yeah as well. yeah so mm. I think like it's so difficult because obviously I don't want to blame everything on social media which I do have a tendency to do but it's <laughs> it's not fair because there are you know there are some aspects of social media that are actually very very beneficial like I guess it's always been a problem that food if we start with food, like food is a very emotional topic. And yeah. it's also a topic that we all have an opinion on, right? And we all have our own experiences because we all learn to eat in those early years in our families. And, and we start to generate beliefs around mm -hmm. food and how we eat and our preferences all based on our early experiences. So that that's a big kind of component of it. But then also food can be something that we use emotionally so like you think about the angry toddler who clamps their mouth shut because they don't want to eat you know because they're mm -hmm. trying to have a tantrum and, and make a point or we think about right. the teenager who avoids eating the vegetables because it's just a way of making a stand like these are just these are just normal 
things that we see, you know, with food. And then on top of that, it feels like everybody wants to share their experience of food. So I think this is where some of the kind of um, miscommunication comes in, in the sense that lots of people will talk about their relationship with food, particularly on social media. And if they are influential or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they they have a certain aesthetic that appeals because of, you know, again, the social ideals that, that we have in, in this world. I think that then starts to inform people of what they should and shouldn't do. Mm. I also think the biggest, biggest problem we have is that very few people will look at the information that's out there and ask themselves, is this relevant to me? And I say that because obviously Mm. we've got a lot of information coming out of the Zoe study at the moment. And everywhere I look, there's someone talking about I did this on the Zoe app and and now I feel like this and and all these kind of different things. And the Zoe kind of study was started by Tim Spector, who is an epidemiologist, which is important. So originally started to collect data on COVID so that we could start to see if there were any associations and symptoms that could help with understanding COVID because obviously none of us knew what COVID was. And so it was a time where a lot of people signed up to it. It was like an app, as a Zoe app, it's called. A lot of people signed up to it and we all updated mm. daily, like what our symptoms might be or what we were doing or, or you know, like, you know, that kind of thing. So it originally started off with some really great ideas and really great information. And then it's kind of taken a bit of a turn in the sense that It is looking at population data, but like with all studies, unless we ask the right question or Mm. often what happens, particularly in epidemiology studies, we are almost trying to direct what we want the response to be. And so there's a lot coming out. And even this morning, I've had someone message me say, you know, what do you think about intermittent fasting? The Zoe app recommends it. And I don't know if I should be doing it. And I will always, always go back to Is it relevant to you? Now, in certain situations, yes, perhaps intermittent fasting may be of benefit to a very small group of people, generally people who are sedentary, generally people who probably do need to lose some weight in terms of improving their health metrics. But if you are somebody who is very active, if you are somebody that is even moderately active, you know, and actually, or you're somebody that actually doesn't need to change your health metrics because they're fine, then no, it's not something I'd be recommending. And I think this is one of the things I try and speak about a lot is that food is personal. The approach you take is individual. But I think where we've lost sight is that the human body is this kind of amazing, it's this amazing feat of engineering. If we if we strip the human body back and you look at it just internally, it is basically a series of chemical reactions that all interact with each other to keep us alive and to make us able to do what we want to do. Mm. And it's really, really good at fine-tuning itself. It knows mm. what to do. It knows it, it's got feedback. It can work out when things are a bit off and it can it can usually solve that within itself. It doesn't need us to do it. Think about blood sugar, for example. When our blood sugar drops, it, you know, it will either send a signal to say that we need to eat food, but at least equally release glucose from our glycogen stores and and allow us to to maintain our blood sugars like we have a very finely controlled piece of machinery most of the time but what has happened is that we've lost sight of listening to our bodies because Mm. there's so much noise and so much information and everybody feels like they're doing it wrong that we've lost sight of listening and actually if we listen we will regulate, which means we'll give our body what it needs and our body will do what it needs to do and it will be where it needs to be. Mm. But I think on top of that, we do have an issue as well with the fact that food has changed significantly. We do have a lot more food that is available that tends to have more kind of chemical substances in it. I'm going to use that as a as a term yeah that can be so frustrating when you're shopping because i think a lot of people do know now check the labels but like for me the sugar thing 
if I just want to get some cornflakes for a quick thing, like trying to find, I just usually end up giving up and I'm like, well, clearly there's none. Because <laughs> it's like, even the air quote healthy ones have got sugar. So it's interesting because I personally don't see sugar as this, this demonized food that is being put out there. I think we have to be mindful mm. of the amount of sugar we have. But I always use this example because I think it's a really good way of um, demonstrating what I'm talking about. If we went out, you and I, Gabby, we went to a cafe mm -hmm. and there was lots of different options available, but there was like cake. So let's say carrot cake because it's my favorite. Okay. Um, but there were also like these, you know, protein bars that are constantly being promoted and, and shoved in our faces at the moment. Yeah. And you wanted to choose the healthier option. I put healthier in inverted commas, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Do you want to choose the, mm -hmm. the more appropriate option? Which would you choose? I would be slightly conflicted, but I would, I guess, the protein bar type one. But I do know it's not as good as it makes out it is, but I would assume that it was maybe marginally better than the carrot cake. You see, and <laughs> that's where the problem lies. Because if we think about what's in carrot cake, probably five or six ingredients, eggs, flour, sugar, carrots, maybe raisins and walnuts, depending on how it's made. We think about the protein bar you look at the packet back of most of these protein bars and they mm. are full of chemical ingredients that you look at and you go i don't even know what that is mm. and mm. we don't know how that is being processed so it's interesting because there's obviously lots of talk at the moment about ultra processed foods and and how harmful they are for us and, and in fact you know one of my good friends kimberly wilson has written an amazing book on it that i would highly recommend but when we're talking about ultra processed foods, this is what we're talking about. We're not necessarily talking about, you know, your pasta or your jar of pasta sauce or even your cornflakes, to be honest. We're talking about these foods that have come onto the market that have got all these ingredients that you just don't know what they are. Yeah. And yet, you know, protein and protein powders and protein products are being pushed and pushed and pushed. That you was know? going to be my follow-up question to you. I was like, well, what about the like the protein powders where sometimes you see chemicals in that, but they're yeah. told that, you know, we should put them in our smoothies and this and that. And, and you know, it's in, and people say to me, why don't you ever use protein powder? I was like, well, because I don't like what's in them fundamentally. So I would eat cake yeah. and I would even have a glass of wine and I'd probably even have some chocolate over protein and protein powders now there are some mm. i just want to make this very clear there are some products that are you know the pure way or the, the pure product that has come from the original ingredient which are absolutely fine to use and you know can be beneficial particularly in in athletes when i'm working with certain athletes and we need to improve their their protein intake and, and you know from a convenience point of view there are some products that are helpful but they are not every single thing that we see on the market and this is where it gets so confusing right this is why yeah. we are so baffled because the messaging is so confusing and again we live in a world where the message it is constantly move more eat less move more eat less and yeah. so every decision so it's interesting i had a client yesterday and her issue was that every decision she made was around reducing her calorie intake so every mm. decision about food she made was trying to be good mm. but what that meant was that later on in the day because again the human body is biologically biased towards achieving energy balance later on in the day because she hadn't fed herself enough earlier in the day she was then struggling to not reach in the biscuit barrel and not have or, you know all the all the yeah. kind of dish snacks because the body was demanding it understandably because it hadn't been fed enough earlier so yeah when I'm working with clients and I'm helping them to re-establish their relationship with food it's, it's, it's a bigger piece than than just what I'm about to say now but one of the things that we talk about is understanding nutrient density and making mm. choices based on nutrients and what your body needs so if you're an athlete actually some of the choices you have to make will be around carbohydrate and sometimes those sources will need to be 
you know, easily absorb carbohydrates, which does mean sugar. And sometimes it will be more complex carbohydrates. So, you know, your pastas and your rices and potatoes and things. You will need protein from a recovery point of view. But again, we'd always try and encourage people to make those choices around real food. So, you know, eggs and chicken and fish and milk and Greek yogurt and things like that, that are going to give you, you know, the actual food groups that are going to give you and deliver immediately and your body can absorb them and knows what to do with them but then things like you know people often try and restrict their intake of fats because again it's got a higher energy yield and but there are so many good fats in our Mm. diet things like you know your avocados your olive oils your oily fish your seeds your nuts these are so important they're very very high in essential fatty acids which we Mm. need for our brain function we need for our heart health if you were doing the sums, and this is one of the reasons I was so anti-calories on menus, if you were doing the sums, you would avoid a meal that probably had all those good fats in them because the calorie value would be much higher than mm. something that probably won't be as healthy for you, but the calorie value would be lower. Like we were talking about the cake and the protein bar, right? Like, Yeah, you've got these like kind of low fat crisp versions haven't you or like a although the crispy they might not be made out of potatoes and I think those can be things sprinkled on them to make them taste good and they're always advertised for like under 100 calories yeah so if you are calorie counting yeah they're not very um satisfying either are they but um something that I found really interesting as well was this um I mean, maybe it's because I, I feel like I struggle a lot with fatigue, even though I do try and watch what I eat. And in terms of like fueling ourselves correctly, like you could be, if we stick with calories, you could be having the recommended calorie amount. It's again, it could be the wrong calories. So you could, again, you could still be getting it completely wrong, but you're scared to eat the healthy fats because then you're going to go over your calorie thing because you're like a skinny latte or whatever from Starbucks and you know so the calories start adding up just go to bed hungry and miserable (laughs) yeah and and this is why I do not talk about calories it's why I don't work with calories I don't because it's not we're not as simple as that humans Mm. are much more complicated and it frustrates me when I see sort of celebrity PTs who are promoting this move more eat less to get the kind of aesthetic And actually, that can be quite harmful to a lot of people. You might get an aesthetic that you may you may see some improvements initially, and then the body can't sustain that. It can't maintain that because the body doesn't like being in a massive deficit. And so then what we start to see is these kind of compensatory behaviors switched on in the body. And that can then have much more detrimental effects to things like your hormones, which again is going to have an effect on how you feel and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. and your energy levels. And, and then it can also have detrimental effects to your mental health as well. So it's very complicated. And when I sometimes stop and think about how mad the world is, I do despair and often find myself feeling a little bit panicky about well what do we do how do we change this because we are definitely living in a world and a time where your image is important like people Mm. put too much value on image and I'm not just talking about what we look like but also on how successful you are yeah yeah well it's like that isn't it it feels like somebody I can't remember where I read it but somebody said to me a while ago it feels like every single account on Instagram is like an individual creating their own brand to promote themselves and highlight who they are. And it's, it's bizarre when you think about it, right? Like it's Mm, such a weird space that we're living in. So strange. Yeah. And so I think the problem is that if we are driven by an aesthetic, if we're driven by an image, then that impacts the behaviors that we we mm. we do and we don't always stop and think are these behaviors actually good for us are they healthy behaviors yeah well we've been brainwashed haven't we i really appreciated a recent post of yours it was about carbs you were debunking about it well it was basically the carb fear that so many of us have myself included and you were saying like we shouldn't avoid 
And I think many of us do. And I spent at the start of the year, nine weeks in India. And part of that, I was doing my yoga teacher training. And I just, I loved it. I loved the food. I loved everything. And certainly on my yoga teacher training, there was so much rice. It was like breakfast. It was, it was, it was the other way. But I obviously had no say in what I was eating. It was like, this is your meal. There you go. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to like gain so much weight from eating all these carbs and everything. And the fear was real. I didn't gain one pound. Like, I didn't gain one pound. And there you go. See, the (laughs) thing is, what happens is is exactly what you just said. The fear is real. And Mm. we create these limiting beliefs. If I Mm. eat carbs, I'm going to put weight on. That's a limiting belief that's keeping you trapped in a place, which means you can't enjoy carbohydrate, which is important for your bone health. It's important for your hormonal health. It's important for your brain. Like, these are important. You know, it's an important nutrient. And yet the only way we can step out of these limiting beliefs is exactly what you had to do, which was go into a place of, you know, out of your comfort zone and yeah. just do it and realize that, ah, so now I'm hoping you're not so fearful of carbs yeah. because you're like, well, actually, I know it doesn't do anything to me because I've proven to myself that it doesn't do anything to me. Yes and no. I'm so deeply conditioned my entire life that I have to catch the thought mm. and go, no, I know that's not true. It's more of a habit for me to avoid yeah. because it's been that way my whole life. Than, but yeah, I am definitely more aware of it and working on it for sure. Yeah. And I think, again, yeah. that's a really important thing to highlight here is that often when we do have these very strong beliefs that have driven behaviors these behaviors become almost automatic it's a bit like mm-hmm. um, imagining you've got a motorway in your brain and you know these pathways are the fast moving traffic that is constantly going and then yeah. when you learn that that might not necessarily be helpful and you, and you start to kind of challenge it like you said you've got to catch it it's almost like oh well, we're now widening the motorway and we're having to add a new lane but that's going to take time. And often the the two have to sort of sit side by side for a while. Um, and mm. that can cause a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of concern. But it's knowing that the more you practice that, that new journey, the more that then becomes the kind of chosen path. And so unfortunately, that is part and parcel of change is that it, it's not an immediate thing. And I think this is one mm. of the things that a lot of the people I work with really struggle is that their old behaviors are so familiar and so comfortable, even though they're not helpful, even though they're not necessarily even good for them, but they're so familiar that they they find it very difficult to sit in that space of discomfort. You know, if you think about when you're in mm. India, the first mm. probably first few times of eating rice three times a day probably felt yeah. really hard and really yeah. hard. But like you said, you were able to kind of go well I've got no choice because I can't I need to eat right and I'm yeah. here and this is what I've got to do and, and now you're you're in a position that you can do that because you're you're not yeah. impacted or affected but if you're working with people who have a real disorder around food then that's the bit that is really interesting and challenging and it's also why eating disorders can't be fixed by giving someone a meal plan and it mm. it frustrates me that that is something that is still given out to people when they're struggling you know when it comes to helping people with disordered relationships with food or even exercise it goes back to what we talked about right at the beginning understanding that behavior like what is it doing for you what is what is the purpose of that behavior how is it protecting you understanding the belief that has got it there in the first place Mm. and then going a little bit deeper and going what is that I'm unwilling to feel in order? Like, why am I putting this protective barrier around me? What is it I'm unwilling to feel? Mm-hmm. And then alongside that, you're having to educate around food and the body and hormones and, and what's beneficial and what's not beneficial. So it's nutrition is really interesting. Like when you study it, and, and when I say study, I don't mean just doing your degree. Like when you actually work in it year after year and you're reading all the research and you're looking at all kind of especially when you're with dietetics you do a lot around human behavior as well because that's a big part of it when you're really 
understanding all those aspects it's not as simple as what we see on Instagram it's not just a pretty no. pokeball you know it's it's not it's <laughs> It's, it's yeah the psychology behind it and I feel like a lot of people my myself included think I wish I thought about food less because mm. <laughs> sometimes we can feel a slave to our cravings as well can't we exactly. and totally what do you think about like with so many different diet plans or ways of eating from like paleo to veganism or plant-based or whatever and then you've got like eating for your blood type and then you've got adverts on TV being like, you know, if you want to lose weight or if you want to be more healthy, then here's this meal delivery service and it comes to your door and you kind of have to give all the power to, and money to somebody else. Do we just forget all of that and just like get back to basics with like simple, healthy food? Because like you said, there's so much noise and mm. messaging. Yes. <laughs> In a word. Fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, if we think about all the things you've just discussed, they are part of a multi-million pound food industry. Mm. People are making money from you. That does not mean it is the right thing for you. It's the same with any industry. It's the same with any sort of, if you think about skincare or you think about makeup, mm. like mm. we know that most of the makeup is made in the same place but it's just the mm. packaging that tends to mm. be different. And then you pay for that packaging. And if you choose to do that, that's entirely up to you. You know, if you're depending on your disposable income, you can do that. Nutrition, I think, it feels a bit more sinister from my point of view, particularly as a yeah. professional working in it, because like, especially these food delivery companies, I mean, I've firsthand experienced, not experienced it myself, but like worked with people that have gone down this path who have signed up for these delivery and they are fundamentally underfueling, and yeah. the composition is not what it needs to be. And I remember, I mean, I can't remember which company it was now. I mean, I think I was offered a, a freebie type thing. So I was like, well, I might as well investigate, like explore as part of my job. And oh my God, like the first thing I was like, this portion is tiny. Like mm. this is, this is not enough. And if you start to think that that's a normal portion, you know, it, it, so that it gets complicated. So I think because, again, most of the information, like most of the things they're basing their information on is obviously things you put, your data you're putting in. So firstly, they're not checking that that is true data. How do you know that person actually needs to work, lose weight? Like they could put anything in, you know, like mm. that is that is a thing. Yeah. And secondly, it's all done on AI. It's all done on algorithms and equations. It's not looking at that human. It's not looking mm -hmm. at that person's genetics or that person's phenotype and, and kind of going, OK, well, that person probably does need a bit more because they are naturally more muscular or they're, mm -hmm. you know, they have uh, broader bones. So they probably do need their requirements are going to be higher. And so you know, I've, I've seen the damage these these programs can do because they, again, brainwash you into thinking you need to eat in this way. And then mm -hmm. you're terrified to actually respond to your own appetite and respond to. And so right. in some cases, it's led to. It's something wrong with me, not with the, with the company. Exactly. <laughs> you know? So exactly. Yeah. And in some cases, it's led to sort of binge eating behavior because you're yeah. in this restrict binge, restrict binge. And other times it's, it's led to kind of severe low energy availability. So very restrictive eating that then has consequences on, on body and mind. So, yeah, I, I would say like I go, I always go back to, you know, listen to your body and make nutrient dense choices. So think about the nutrient and the value. You know, if you fancy having scrambled eggs on toast with an avocado for breakfast, and that's what you want, actually, that's a really good meal. You've got your Sounds carbs, you've got your protein, you've got your, you've got your essential yeah. fats, and it will sustain you until lunchtime. You know, yeah. even things like, you know, I'm not anti um, fat free Greek yogurt. I think in some cases, you do need to go down that road if you've got coronary you know kind of family history of heart disease mm -hmm. or you do need to lose weight or whatever then then you can go down that road but again if you actually tend to eat the two percent or the five percent sort of greek yogurt again it's much more filling you're gonna be fuller for longer like these are the foods that our body can absorb 
and they kind of help us to to sort of mm. to meet that society satiation and this is what we don't do and this is a problem with all these ultra processed foods and all these things that are available is that they're not satisfying and so we keep going in search of more and more and more Mm. Yeah, I had a friend that when we were at university, and it was years later, she admitted that she fibbed about it. When we were at uni, she said she was like glucose intolerant and allergic to dairy and all this stuff. And then she was always very slim. And then years and years and years later, she was like, yeah, I'm totally not. That was based on nothing. That was just me trying to, this was my way of having an excuse to control the types Mm. of food I ate. And especially like if it was in social get-togethers or whatever, that would be her justification for having the lower calorie thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's quite, quite sad. Most of our app users and listeners are female, the lion's share for sure. So I'd love to touch on hormones because mm-hmm. I know that you're very passionate about this and do a lot of work in this field in terms of like working with female athletes. And I mean the impact that hormones has on our body is huge. I'd never heard of relative energy deficiency syndrome, or is it more commonly known? Is it REDS? You'd Mm -hmm. say REDS, yeah. yeah. Until I read your book, More Fuel You, the most recent one. And then I looked at the symptoms, fatigue, weight loss, dehydration, gastro problems, abnormal or absent periods, bone loss, stress fractures, um, repeated muscle and tendon injuries, cold intolerance, slow heart rate, low blood pressure, periods of fasting, fasting, limited food or binge eating, extreme exercise, anxiety or depression, problems concentrating, problems sleeping. And I was like, oh my God, I've got about 50% of those. <laughs> Is that me? But uh, yeah, it, it just made me again, very aware and mm. um, and thinking about how many women this probably effects and they might not know it and there was a quote and again I think it was from your book where you said it worries you how many females think it's normal to skip a period or to not have a period Mm. um so yeah I'd love you to talk a little bit about this and and what you found yeah so reds as you said is relative energy deficiency syndrome or relative energy deficiency in sports so it came about in sports first that's not to say it doesn't affect other people but it's a big term that we use in sport a few years ago that's like 2016 when the first ioc international olympic committee consensus statement came out about it and what they were basically doing was they'd realized that we we definitely had a problem in female athletes around not having sufficient energy for the the amount of training they were doing which was then causing um, a cessation of menstruation so periods were stopping which was then leading to um, bone health issues and, and namely you know increased risk of stress fractures and, and of course that was then having a, a much bigger impact on their ability to perform and stay in the sport what they realized was that actually it wasn't just affecting bones it was affecting it's multifactorial and multi-system so it was actually affecting all sorts of different systems within our bodies as well and it wasn't just restricted to women. It was actually also affecting male athletes too. So hence mm-hmm. they changed the terminology from female athlete triad to this, this red S. Now, what was interesting for me was that when I was reading the consensus paper for the first time, I was like, well, this is just what we see in eating disorders. These symptoms mm-hmm. are just kind of, you know, exactly what we see in the clinical world in terms of, low energy availability and so this is probably more of a relevant term to to your listeners and followers is that low energy availability is Mm. when there's not enough energy in the body to do the work that the body needs to do so that means that there's not enough energy for movement whether that includes your gym training or running or whatever it is you're doing and your general movement so walking the dog taking the kids to school as well as the energy we need for all those biological processes in the body. So some of the things we were talking about earlier, your brain, your heart, your lungs, your bone health, like these, your your hormonal system. So what happens is that when we take energy in, the body tends to prioritise that energy towards all our movement first. And then what is left over is used for our biological processes. And it's that, that energy that's left over that's known as energy availability. 
But what mm-hmm. we're finding is in this present world, like we've said all through this podcast so far, that, you know, because people are so mindful of what they're eating and often they are making poor choices and often choosing low energy foods because that's what they believe is, is important. And we're all trying to move more because that's what we're constantly pushed and told to do. This balance is becoming more and more problematic. And so we're seeing more and more women who are in this low energy availability status. And Mm. this underpins Red S, which is much more athlete orientated. But the low energy availability is definitely something I see in female, well, in all population groups, regardless of your male, female, sporty, not sporty. It can happen to anybody. And what happens is when, like I said, when there's not enough energy in the body, then it starts to downregulate your metabolism and it starts to downregulate all those biological processes. So in women, one of the first things to happen usually, and it's not the only thing, but usually is that there'll be changes to their menstrual function. And that might mean that your cycle becomes shorter. It becomes lighter. It may be that the length of your cycle becomes much shorter or longer, or it disappears completely. And anything that is different from the norm for you should definitely be questioned. So, mm. you know, again, we, you know, we're so used, and we still get it. I still get it from people that come to my clinic that they're told, well, you're active. That's why you don't have a period. That doesn't mean it's okay. Because even just missing three menstrual cycles can start to have a negative effect on your bone health, which, you know, for women is, in, well, for all of us is important, but for women, right. and particularly particularly women, because as we go through perimenopause and then menopause, as our estrogen levels are already declining, we're already at risk of low bone density. So if we start off with low bone density, we yeah. are at a much higher risk of osteoporosis and then problems as we get older. And yeah. what I'm seeing, and, and I've I, I, I put this out there because it's so important, what I'm seeing is that this situation of eating less and moving more is becoming more prevalent in the younger age group. So you're getting young girls who are going through puberty, who are restricting food groups, restricting their energy intake because you know they want to fit them all, they want to do the next trend, they're looking at an influencer who's saying all these things. Mm. And this is a key time of development. It's a key time when you're putting down bone density. And what we're finding is that a lot of girls are not, they're not even reaching their peak bone mass because they're not fueling properly. They're not looking after their bodies properly. And then you get the, you put them through the transition of puberty. And we don't teach anything decent about puberty in this country in schools like we talk about periods and what they are and we terrify most young girls with the thought of having a period and it's going to be painful and it's going to be rubbish and you shouldn't really you know but you you know but we don't talk about the negative consequence of not having one but we mm. also don't talk about the fact that having hormones suddenly means that everything changes for us so the way we think the way we feel the way our bodies are, the way we feel about our bodies, like all of this mm. becomes heightened, particularly during that sort of two to three years after you get your period. Mm. And so what, again, I'm seeing is that lots of girls who get their periods, which is a good thing, but then they see their body start to change because again, it's normal. So we know that, you know, in that kind of early adolescence, boys and girls are very similar. They're probably like more like eight, 10% body fat. And as soon as girls go through puberty, the influence of estrogen means that over those next two to three years, probably lay down another 10% body fat. So you get something like 18, 20, 22% body fat. Now, this is normal. This is 100% normal. And it's still a very low body fat. It is Mm -hmm. what we need to be women to be able to support life in the future. Mm -hmm. And Mm. our body is going to change. You can't stay the same as you were when you were 11 or 12. Like your body has to change. But I'm seeing this so often at the moment. And I I mean, I do work with with young people. So, you know, it is prevalent in my clinic. But I see that these young girls trying to control and restrict their bodies from doing what the body needs to do. 
And then they don't realize the kind of longer term implications to their bone health or even to their right. mental health or to their potential fertility yeah. in the future. And yeah, it's difficult when you're 15, you're not thinking about having a baby, so you don't really care. But the problem is that if you're 15, and particularly if you're 15 and a physically active young woman and you want to go on to continue doing sport, if you don't look after your bone health at that point, then you're going to potentially be at much higher risk of issues. And this is what I see, like it's young women in their 20s who've maybe not had periods Mm. in their teenage years because of not eating enough, that then actually they restrict their potential in terms of athletic performance because they keep breaking. So yeah, Yeah. it's a complicated subject and it is a really complicated subject. It's not one, again, it's like with everything at the moment, you know, something becomes popular, something becomes topical and then everyone's talking about it. And now I'm seeing like everybody has got on the bandwagon of female health, female like hormonal health, red S, low energy availability and most people don't know what they're talking about because it's complicated it's not as simple as well just eat a bit more and everything will be okay it's not as simple as that it's it's complicated but I suppose going back to hormonal health you know one of the 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 biggest misconceptions I see is believing that it's okay to miss a period as Mm. we've already discussed but also not realizing that carbohydrates going back to that topic are really really important to help regulate our menstrual cycle so when women avoid carbohydrates or when they do a lot of fasted training a particularly high intensity fasted training these Mm. are some of the things that can then lead to disruption to hormones and then potentially cause some of the consequences we've already discussed um Mm. if, 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 if that becomes something chronic one more question on the the low energy availability because I think that does affect so many people. Would you say in most cases it is because we're not getting what we need out of food, probably because of these beliefs like some of the ones we've talked about? I think it's a combination of behaviour, societal ideals, the pressure we feel. But yes, I mean, again, you know, you you mentioned earlier one of the common sort of nutritional approaches the moment is being plant-based and while there are many benefits to us being plant-based what again I see is that people fall into the trap of avoiding the actual carbohydrate so avoiding the the rice or the the potatoes and and filling their plate full of vegetables thinking well I'm plant-based so I can do that that's what I need to fill my um, Mm. plate with but the problem with fruit and vegetables as much as they are great for us from a micronutrient point of view and from a fiber point of view it's that fiber as well that's the problem because there's no energy in fiber if you need need, energy needs to be met you're not going to make need them just through eating vegetables and fruit you have to have some of the other uh, you know groups in there and it's this is probably one of my biggest bugbears particularly when it comes to food tracking apps because they will count all the carbohydrate in fruit and vegetables and it would make someone believe that they're eating enough carbohydrate but it doesn't educate them on the fact that actually you know maybe 200 grams of the carbohydrate they're eating is coming Mm. from fruit and vegetables which means it's not available and it's not going to deliver the energy that you need to to have good hormonal health and, and general good health my gosh, I've learned so much today. So what about the skipping carbs at night then? Is that a, is that one of those, again, myths that came out of nowhere? Yeah, yeah pretty you're much. Nodding. I mean, it, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the problem is, is that a lot of the, the myths that come out, come out because someone somewhere has done it, it's worked for them and they've decided to promote it. But mm-hmm. that's not science. And that's, again, I go back to what we discussed right at the beginning of this podcast, always ask the question is this relevant to me Mm. and I think if you can start doing that then hopefully you can start making better choices for you and you Mm. alone Mm. well I'm sure you um, stress to your clients and you know we hear it as well about the importance of a rest day you know in terms of training 
Yes. Which again, people don't always follow because there's that guilt, isn't there? And then fear (laughs) that something terrible is going to happen. I'm not going to perform as well or I'm going to gain some weight or whatever. Yes. I have to ask, what are some of your personal favourite foods that make you feel strong on the outside and on the inside? Oh, good question. I love toast. (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't expecting that one as you first. I eat a lot of peanut butter on toast, (laughs) which is great. Like in terms of it gives me lots of good nutrients and and helps with like serotonin and, and things like that. So I'm a big fan of peanut butter on toast. I think like one of my favorite meals, I mean, I love spicy food because I grew up obviously in an Indian family. So Mm. everything I cook tends to have quite a lot of spice but one of my favorites at the moment is a slight take on my very first book training food has got recipes in it and and there's like a baked bean recipe I think I've called it like special baked beans or something but I've I've adapted it even further and now mm. I do like this three bean chili I say chili I mean it's it's kind of just a bit of a hash of whatever's in the fridge and everything and you throw it together but it's so I love it. I find it really tasty and I, I get a lot of comfort from from eating eating that as well. There is a new book coming out Ooh. at some point next year, which will have that recipe in it before people start asking me about the recipe. What else do I like? Um, I mean, I do like chocolate. I am partial to chocolate and I will always have some chocolate if I want it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I eat most things. There's very little I don't eat. So refreshing to have these answers from somebody who is, you know, studies nutrition and is a sports dietitian. And you're like, yeah, peanut butter on toast. That's my go-to. I'm going to go for the carrot cake over the, you know, protein bar. I was going to say I like cake. (laughs) And and, and my partner always says to me, he's like, you haven't had any cake this week. We better go and get you some cake. Because I do do like cake. And um, I don't see it as a treat. I just see it as something that is part of my you know, weekly intake, but it's one of those things that probably eat in less volume than say vegetables and fruit and all those different things. So I do, you know, I kind Mm -hmm. of, I tend to follow a very Mediterranean approach to eating. I I am vegetarian, so I don't eat Mm -hmm. fish or meat, but we, you know, we eat a lot of beans and pulses. We have a lot of tofu. Mm -hmm. I don't avoid dairy. So yeah, I'm I'm very, very balanced. I do practice what I preach fundamentally. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah yeah fab final question i ask every guest at the end of the episode to set the listeners some homework based on the theme of the episode so in this case what is a simple actionable step that we can all take when it comes to optimizing our food for fuel that will help us all on our mission to building a happier life so this is a task i do set people who come to clinic and I think it's a good one it's a bit of a long one but it's a good one is Mm -hmm. write down all your food beliefs all the things like you were saying about carbs people say about sugar like write down Mm -hmm. all your food beliefs and write them down and then read them back and go through them one by one and ask yourself where that belief has come from and is it true and if it's true, where's the evidence that it's true? Oh, it's so good. Oh, I've learned so much from this conversation. Um, thank you so much for today. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, thank you. And for more on you on socials, if people aren't already following you, Instagram, it's r underscore yeah. McGregor. That's uh, right. t- TikTok is Reeny, R-E-N-E-E underscore McGregor. And then yeah. Twitter is at McGregor underscore Rini. I don't know why I invisibly write when I do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry at all. I'm, I think it's, it's how our brains are wired. Yeah, Rini, thank you so much for being very generous with your time. And oh, honestly, just like, wow, all the stuff. And I'm sure there's so much more as well. <laughs> Goodness. Oh, lo- lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. There'll be many um, th- like me that would have silently like fist bumped when the thing about the cake. I was like, yeah, you know, because you've <laughs> often to go, well, I'd better have the flapjack, even though you really want the cake, right? But now yeah. I'm going to be like, I want the cake. I'm having the cake. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> have the cake. <laughs> 
Thanks again to Rini McGregor. It's Gabby back with you. You know, the other night I made myself some salmon and vegetables and usually that would be my kind of go-to in the evening and that would be that. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to add a little bit of pasta to go with this because I was feeling quite hungry. So I did. I enjoyed the whole dinner. And I have to say, usually I wouldn't feel quite satisfied, so I'd always have a bit of chocolate or some biscuits afterwards. But the other night, no craving at all. Not even before bed, quite a few hours later. I was like, wow, she really knows her stuff. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, that sometimes we think we're doing the best for ourselves, but actually when we start to question it and think about where these messages came from, maybe we're not. Just one more minute of your time, please. And that's for the important housekeeping. If you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download. So you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewer, which is me, and the interviewees. The content of this podcast should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The primary healthcare are not involved in the production or content of this podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please do subscribe and uh, leave a review if you so have the time. And to find and follow us on social media, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. So please do take care, guys, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now. <laughs>